You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Rasob here. I'm excited to be joined by 2018 NLC New York fellow, Arvesa Bajo is here. Let's hear about life on the East Coast and some other interesting things she's got going on in her life. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. All right, Arvesa, I'm glad you're joining us. I was very intrigued about your uh, upcoming Spark Talk for the NLC convention. Can you share a little bit about what your planning on talking about? Absolutely. Um, So my uh, Spark Talk is really about my personal experience as a survivor of the 1997 Albanian Civil War. Um, Really, my experience through that um, war and then certainly my experience then consequently as a political refugee in various um, countries in Europe, but specifically Paris, France, where I spend most of my uh, youth. And then certainly also my SPAC talk is about the experience of, of me uh, leaving everything behind and moving for a third time in the United mm-hmm. States in Brooklyn and really what, what it feels like to be a survivor of civil war, what it feels like to be a political refugee, uh, what it feels like to be part of a marginalized community, um, feeling lonely, being part of a community that is very oftentimes dehumanized, um, and then how we can build um, ourselves, our refugee communities, and how entire families can kind of have finally um, really thinking about ways that they can rebuild their dreams and rebuild the future. And I, and I particularly tie my personal experience to civic engagement, um, which is essentially kind of the work that I do now as part of the mayor's office of New York City. Um, I work the NYC service, which is the civic engagement division of the mayor's office. And really, because I experienced it you know, firsthand, I know that volunteerism and advocacy and activism are so, so are really essential parts of, of the refugee experience. Um, and I really want to tie those two concepts together um, to be able, yeah. Mm-hmm. And is, is this a... Yeah, is this a, a a story you tell frequently, or how often do you you find yourself putting your story together in this way? It quite frankly, um, it took me a very long time to actually come forward and 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 share my personal background. Um, very often, people don't realize that one, I am a political refugee; that I am a Muslim woman coming from a patriarchal society. Um, community. And so it took me a very long time. I think I spent most of my adolescence really thinking uh, that it wasn't, that I couldn't really share that because no one really would understand my experiences. And and it is only after, you know, during college um, and then after after college that I realized that it was an important story to tell and for people to identify with, and specifically with the Syrian refugee crisis, I thought it was, I think I, I thought it was a responsibility to be able to share the fact that, um, you know, there are many of us out there, and we have survived, and we continue mm-hmm. to to grow and and really build our lives and our dreams. And then, what's the most challenging part of your story to tell? I think it certainly is the civil war piece. Uh, I think it all began there. I was seven years old. Um, and, and really my family uh, and I, we were personally and directly touched by the violence of the civil war. Um, so we experienced it firsthand. And, and, and it was, um, 
it was a January of 1997, and it was really the decisive moment, the moment where we were, where where our house was submerged by, um, by by militias. It, and it was that moment that I realized that everything that I ever knew uh, just dissipated in front of me. And in a couple of hours, um, I, I kind of had grown up, and I couldn't recognize the 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 child Ravessa. And somehow, by the morning, I had become a fully grown up mm. and i think that was it was I, I guess the loss of innocence at that at that particular time and then certainly uh the trauma that he leaves uh, that he leaves for for that he left for myself and for my family and my younger brother and then since coming to the states and doing the work that you're doing what do you feel like people most misunderstand about refugees and political refugees in general um well I, th I think what has happened, uh, obviously, you know, through our administration um, and, and to some extent the media, is that the refugee experience has been dehumanized. Um, refugees and Syrian refugees, for instance, which is currently, you know, it's not the only refugee um, kind of experience or challenge that we are experiencing currently, but it's certainly the one of the most talked about. Um, it's this idea that and they're coming to your house to take things away from you, and it's a little bit, a little bit sort of a, sort of the the narrative that I heard as a political refugee myself only, and I recognize my privilege in in, in this conversation. I I am white. I look I look uh, Caucasian, and so um, and so being able to kind of confront people with their prejudices, thinking that only Syrian people, only Middle Eastern people can be uh, refugees. Uh, it's a little bit kind of uh, my personal goal and, and telling them that the refugee experience is, is vast and is different and is diverse. Um, and it often comes from from native countries that are, you know, corrupted. Um, and so that it can touch, so the refugee experience can touch anyone and everyone. Um, and that being bored in the West is sort of a privilege and not very often we we take, you know, we very often, I believe, take for granted. And then when you compare your experience here in the States to your experience in Europe and at that formative age when you were in France, what do you feel like was the impact on you uh, emotionally, intellectually, your worldview? Like, how did that shape you? I think I spent really three formative stages of my life in three vastly different cultures, vastly different um, countries, and with vastly different languages. I spent my um, childhood years in Albania really becoming traditionally, really being you know born into a traditionally uh, wonderful family, Albanian family. And then I spent my, my teenage years in France, and this is where I kind of formed you know, certainly due to my experience as a polar refugee, but I, I, I kind of formed my ideals and my values and my passions and my principles. And then at the age of 18, when I moved to the United States, and this is kind of the young adulthood stage of my life, I didn't speak a word of English. And so I had to kind of learn what the American culture was. I, I had like a very, you know, many actually European kids. I, I had a very superficial understanding of what, America was what the United States were all about. Uh, you know, you you learn you know about the United States via MTV mu music videos, uh, and so and so I knew Fifty Cent, but I had no idea what 
the political climate was or, or what the educational system was. And I think for me, it was a little bit more difficult moving here in the sense that I spent quite a bit of effort and time and energy back in France, really building, rebuilding myself after the civil war and after the political refugee experience. And I was ready to to move on to the next stage of my life, go to you know college in France, and I and I knew what I wanted to do. And then, very suddenly, moving here at the age of eighteen in Brooklyn and not knowing and not speaking a word of English, or kind of it was it was very difficult because here I was again at the age of eighteen trying to rebuild, you know, another set of dreams and another set of um, kind of potential uh, without really understanding the system very well. And so it took me a very a very long time to be able to feel comfortable and being able to say, I know everything that I used to know about the language and the people and the culture. And, and, you know, this is my home now. Um, so, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. When we come back, we'll ask a few more questions about life in the mayor's office in New York. You're listening to the Zag. We'll be right back. All right. So how many languages do you speak? Five. <laughs> so what is the key to learning languages? I think it was, well, it was, first of all, fostered by uh, by the, the household that I grew up in. I think my father was and still is uh, a big fan of languages and linguistics. And so I, I remember vividly at the age of six, him sitting me down and telling me, well, now you're going to learn Italian. Uh, and I remember having a terrible time, terrible, terrible time. My father was and still is fairly strict teacher. Um, but I think that's where I started developing my love for languages. And it blossomed, full on blossomed when I was... Um, when, when we were political refugees in Paris, where, you know, kind of, I became to some extent the representative of, of the household because I was able to catch on to the language extremely quickly. Um, and so I, at the age of eight and nine, I was the one who would show up at, you know, the French office for the protection of refugees and stateless persons. And I would ask for this gigantic uh, application to be filled out. And I, at the age of eight, would be the one to fill that out because I was able to speak the language. And so very early on, I understood that if I wanted to connect with others, if I wanted to connect with the world on a, on a large scale, I needed to be able to speak the languages and, and, and understand the cultures. Um, and so, you know, um, I... I kind of studying right now, Afrikaans. I, it, I'm very passionate and very, very curious about, about linguistics um, overall. So, so yeah, it wasn't, it's, it's been a ride. <laughs> <laughs> and then how long did it take you to learn the language of New York politics and working in the mayor's office and dealing with constituents and those kind of things? What does your day-to-day work look like? Oh my goodness, that's probably the hardest language I've have yet to learn. <laughs> um, well, New York City, it's quite frankly like running a small country. Um, we are eight point six million um, New Yorkers as 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 of today, uh, and really, what the New York uh, the, the the mayor's office in New York City is trying to do is is build a more equitable and safe uh, world and, and communities for for all of us. Um, I'm I think I'm very lucky in the sense that. The work that I do is particularly focused in empowering communities that that oftentimes are voiceless. Um, and I do that by, by encouraging city agencies, mayoral offices, um, NGOs, and, and nonprofits, big or small, to think of, of engagement 
um, of civic engagement as a key strategy to be able to bridge the gap between communities, individuals, and and the government. Um, that this is a big passion of mine. I think I I I experience the divide between you know being able to receive governmental services if one is part of a of a voiceless and and unempowered community, if you will, while I was a political refugee. And I even then at a young age, I realized there must be a way where bureaucracy is able to be not so impenetrable. There, there must be ways to build pipelines of community engagement between the common neighborhoods and the common communities, and then the services that are offered via government. Um, and so this is what I do, and, and particularly the way that I think it's fascinating, the work that I do, is because I encourage nonprofits to build their inter- internal infrastructure to be able to engage New Yorkers in meaningful and strat- strategic ways, so they, in return, can more easily and more efficiently and effectively uh, achieve their social missions. And then if you had to pinpoint one success that you've seen since being in your role, what would you say had that success has been? I think being able to engage over 100 uh, CEOs and nonprofits in a change management curriculum to really change or reshape and re-educate the definition of volunteerism. Uh, very often people and CEOs and, and really New Yorkers think of volunteerism as, as very sporadic engagement. And what we're trying to do out of our office, at the mayor's office, is really help reshape the conversation around volunteerism and make it sound and make it seem that it's an important strategy because it is an engagement tool that continues for generation if, if it's properly, you know, established um, and so one thing that I'm particularly proud of um, is the fact that we have been able to create a civic engagement movement that is sustainable and that is based on strategic use of volunteers in New York City. Nice. And if we had to keep an eye on one thing to watch for in New York City, because I feel like as cities are, I guess LA is like this a little bit too, uh, things tend to happen here yeah. or out there first in terms of policies or interesting trends to watch. If we had to keep an eye on one thing, what kind of advice would you tell us to watch? The work that we're doing on the immigration front, I think has been tremendous. Uh, the mayor's office of immigrant affairs has been a leader in the nation in making sure that New Yorkers who happen to be undocumented, um, or dreamers are able to continue their lives and are able to continue to fulfill their dreams. So I think New York City is going to remain a leader in the space in protecting immigrants and refugee rights. Um, and so this is something that I'm particularly excited to see develop uh, and particularly excited to see New York City stand up to, to the uh, federal administration. Nice. Listen, thanks for sharing your story. And thanks for everyone who's listened to this episode of The Zag. You can catch all past episodes, and there's a lot of them, over 60 or so, in the iTunes Store, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. They're everywhere. Thanks for downloading and listening. More episodes coming later this week. Until then, we'll catch you soon.